Welcome to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast from the Escape Collective Podcast Network. Did I, did I say that right, Kelly? I think so. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, well, this is the very first episode. I almost said welcome back, but this is the first time we're doing this, so I guess it's just welcome. You've probably heard us in the past few months on the Placeholder Podcast, and we are now growing, evolving. This is a new podcast, a brand new podcast with a really awesome name that took a lot of creativity. All credit to Kelly on that one, by the way. <laughs> Uh, also, some major credit to Matt Deneef for that awesome music you just heard. Thanks to Matt for that. We're pretty excited about all of this. So, yeah, welcome to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. I'm Dane Cash. You've heard Kaylee a bit already, but I'll give you a real intro as well, Kaylee. Uh, Kaylee Fritz, welcome to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. I feel like we're going to need some kind of acronym or some way, some shorter version of this. The, yeah, the uh, which PSBRP. Was, that already, just, we already have burp. an acronym. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which, to, to be clear, was named because I think I was just, I needed something to reference yep. it as in, in conversations with you. A but placeholder hey, that's, from that's, the placeholder. That's how the that's how all the best podcasts It's a literal a placeholder that have that became a name, which that's yeah. what, kind of what we do here. Very on brand. Uh, you're, if you're listening, you've already heard a little bit in the background there of, uh, of Cosmo Catalano. Cosmo, Which, I mean, people welcome. have heard me before if they've been listening to the placeholder. That's true. I had a guest appearance, uh, that, appearance true. across worlds. So yeah, uh, welcome, welcome to the PSBRP. I am so excited to be here. I've had a lot uh, of coffee, and I'm ready for this. Uh, that's good because uh, I, I want I want you caffeinated for maximal ranting <laughs> ability. Uh, and the fourth person joining us for the original inaugural Pretty Serious Bike Racing podcast episode one, Ruth Winder. Ruth, uh, a current gravel racer. I, I did check beforehand to make sure I could say that, that was the, the way to introduce her. Uh, but also a, a lifelong uh, cycling uh, su- superstar. Let's say superstar. A national champion here in, in the United States of, of America. Uh, winner of many bike races. Uh, multi-time racer of the race we're going to talk a lot about today, Strada Bianca. Ruth, we're pretty, we're pretty excited to have you here. So welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about bikes. It's so much of my life, so it's fun to be here, especially if I just get fun introductions like that. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll try myself. to keep it. I'll try to keep it fun every week. I'll, I may have to come. I'll be. I'll be scrolling through PCS to find a new result to hype maybe every week. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm all for it. <laughs> it is super handy to have bike racers on uh, the, the podcast when, when PCS exists, because I can always check like, all right, how, when's so-and-so's birthday and <laughs> what race did they win? Uh, yeah. You mentioned being excited to talk about bike racing and I'm very excited to talk about bike racing. And I know that Cosmo's always excited to talk about bike racing. Mm-hmm. And as I noted to Kaylee, uh, a few minutes before the, the podcast started, I, I think we're all just very excited to talk about bike racing. I, I know I'll just talk about it to anybody who will listen uh, and I think we wanted to have a little section here to, to tell people what the heck we're doing here. Uh, we, we're coming to you on this this first episode uh, on the feed that you've been listening to, the, the placeholders and the geek warning. What are we doing here? What are we doing at the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast? And I figured the best person to answer that might actually be Kaylee, because we'll just talk about bike racing to anybody who will listen. Kaylee, why why are you giving us a platform? That's the real, the real question. I think that's what people probably should know about. Uh, I well, I think the answer is is quite simple, which is that we know that there are a lot of people out there who want to hear us talk about bike racing and would like to hang out with us in their ears talking about bike racing. And to be perfectly honest, uh, the placeholders is a little bit less of a serious bike racing podcast. It's not even close to pretty serious, I would say. <laughs> uh, in fact, there are tangents galore, and we kind of go off on on lots of weird little avenues uh, into dead ends. And yeah, it, it's, you know, we, we've never been all that focused on like racing analysis and really digging into the how and the why things happened in bike racing. We, you know, placeholders has always been more about what are the big stories of the week and, and let's talk about those and, and make sure we keep people informed and hopefully slightly, slightly entertained. This will be a pretty serious bike racing podcast. I mean, you know, 
does what it says on the tin. I think that's uh, I think that's a good way to think about this one. And yeah, it just it, it fits in with the rest of the sort of escape collective podcast network. I think pretty well. Uh, side note: If you're listening to this, you're subscribed to the Placeholders podcast, probably. Uh, now would be a good time if you haven't already to go sign up for Escape Collective because we are still in our founding phase. We are not as of yet to our target, which means, uh, I, I hate to have to reiterate this, if we don't get there, all of this disappears into the ether with a soft scream. And so I would really appreciate it if you would head over to escapecollective.cc and sign yourself up. If you like this podcast, if you like our other podcasts, to keep them going, we need your support. So please go do that. Is that is that a, a adequate explanation, Dane? Yeah, and I would second the the thing you just said about uh, yeah. you know going over signing up because I don't want this to disappear in the ether. We just started, like I, that's we got to have at least a few episodes. It'd be sad, you know. Yeah, it'd be yep. real sad. Uh, well, thanks for telling us why we're here. That's good. That's good to know. I'm glad to now know why I'm here. Uh, and we could just get into talking about bike racing. It is the the pretty serious bike racing podcast, and we were very lucky to have. Some pretty serious bike racing over the weekend. Uh, some pretty serious bike racing that was, I thought, very entertaining. I thought we had two great editions of Strada Bianca, uh, the White Roads. And why not? Why don't we just talk about it? Why, that, that's what we're here for. So I figure we talk about the women's race first. It did happen first, uh, and it was that was a very entertaining event. It was a race that really kind of came down to the wire, and that was uh, that kept it interesting throughout. Although. Always, this race is interesting throughout. I would say that we are we are typically watching races that are interesting throughout at, at Strada. Uh, Cosmo, before we go any farther, I didn't put this in the run sheet. I meant to, and I forgot. Um, so it's not in the run. You're not going to be prepared for this. I just figured oh. I was going to ask you, <laughs> okay. without but without any preparation, could you give us like a 20 second yeah. uh, explainer on like maybe how this race was. Uh, Taken you, to victory. Yeah, uh, that's. By, it, yeah. I, I like how you phrased that. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, we got forty six k of coverage, which is pretty solid for for a women's world tour race. And what we started with was very stop and start racing. A lot of either very aggressive, unsustainable attacks or riders sitting all across the road looking at each other. Around forty k from the finish, uh, Kristen Faulkner from Jaco Alula. Uh, went clear and went clear in a way that was very much not a unsustainable attack. It took her, I think, about two kilometers to catch one rider who was off the front. Uh, so very kind of steady pace. Uh, and behind her, kind of the start and stop really continued until about 20K to go. And uh, Movistar and SD Works really set up on the uh, Colia Penzuto climb slash gravel section. I don't quite know what to call it because it's sort of both. We need a handy name. Like, there's got to be some kind of handy name for that, but I, I don't, I don't know yeah, what it it's, is. I'm sure we, yeah. can, we can. We should. I bet if we talked to RCS and said we need a handy name to describe they these would... combination sector climbs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this it was a, a pretty obvious, uh, you know, tactically important point in the course, and a lot of people attacked, and you ended up with a group of about seven going clear. Uh, Annemiek van Vloten from Movistar, Cecilia Utrecht-Ludwe from. Uh, what is Suez FDJ, I think is the name of their team. Uh, Puck Peterson was there, uh, and they all kind of got clear, stabilized, and then Demi Vollering from SD Works took off. Uh, Kopecky was in the group behind to watch attacks for her. She went clear about 17k to go, and all of a sudden, there was a horse in the middle of the race course. Um, it, I think uh, we can get to that. Yeah? I think we get a whole horse segment coming Nice. Up. Okay. I did write uh, HORSE ON THE COURSE. In all caps, in the run sheet. Yeah. So the horse was on the course. The horse went off the course. Um, the next climb, the really the last gravel section, uh, Kopecky, her teammate, somewhat surprisingly came across, and the two did a team time trial to the bottom of the final climb where they caught um, Faulkner. Uh, it was not the smoothest catch I've ever seen. We'll probably talk about that. Uh, and then once they both got past her, they really seemed to have a pretty legit race against each other last hundred some odd meters of the race. Uh, Vollering just pipped Kopecky, did not look very happy or seem very happy about it. Uh, but yeah, really kind of interesting, exciting, nail-biting sort of finish. Uh, I was stoked on it. All right, so long story short, another dominant 
uh, finish from SD Works, even if it didn't necessarily, it wasn't obvious that was going to happen with uh, even 10 minutes to go. It was still kind of unclear, I thought. Uh, lots of things to talk about. For our first thing I have here on our on our list of things to talk about, uh, do, do we think anybody could have done anything against the SD Works 1-2? Was there a way to tactically play this that something else could have happened, or was this was this going to happen? I mean, Faulkner kind of almost did it. Like, uh, we'll probably talk about this more in the horse section, but it was not entirely clear prior to Kopecky bridging that Vollering was going to close the gap down. Um, the horse definitely expanded the gap. You know, the horse came on, I think she was about a minute down. The horse went away. She was like 120 down. Um, but I, you know, there, I saw a lot of things in this stop and start racing that I think especially a lot of teams, especially uh, Phoenix Alpeson could really, if they can coordinate a little bit better, they can really make a dent, I think, in SD Works. Uh, Park Peters is very excited about racing bikes, it seems like. Uh, she finished, I think, sixth and was, like, pump, pumping her chest and, like, swinging her arm as she came across the line. Uh, and I think if she and uh, Christina Schweinberger, who is very active kind of following these attacks, if they can coordinate a little bit better, I think they could definitely break up some of what SD Works is doing. That doesn't mean they're going to, you know, be there on equal footing, but I think there's definitely a chance to make things a little more interesting from a team tactics point of view. Yeah, because up to this point, I mean, SD Works has done what they've done year in, year out. I mean, there there were maybe two years there where the the Bulls Domans squad that they used to be didn't have quite the same level of results, but they've been awesome to start the year. And I'm just kind of curious what other teams are, are thinking right now about that. Uh, all right, you mentioned the horse on the course. We don't have to talk too much about the horse on the course, but I wanted to note that the horse on the course made it made the non-cycling media. You know, I saw stories um, that were from websites and, and outlets that don't cover cycling. And I've, I've, I had this thought as I was reading uh, those headlines, which is that those things happen enough in the sport that I didn't like, – yeah, there was a horse in the course. It was wild. I'm like, wow, there's a horse. And then, and then the horse was gone, and then I didn't really think about it anymore. And that happens a little bit too much in cycling. It's a little weird. I mean, Ruth, as somebody who's been in a bike race, I don't think with a horse, has anything weird jumped in front of you in a bicycle race before? I mean, the classic dog on the course, you know, maybe a pedestrian that didn't somehow get the cue that there was a bike race coming through. But like, no, that was the first time. And I couldn't help but think like, oh, my gosh, what would I have done if I was her, like in that situation? Like, what do you do? You can't ride to like, what if the horse turns into you? It's much scarier than like a little dog or something like running alongside you. It's this huge, massive horse. So she screamed and you could hear it on the on the audio and I would have too it's ter- it would have been terrifying and I love horses but I still would have been like just so scared in the moment I think I was yeah. I was pretty impressed how she handled it I mean she just kept racing and fast and the horse eventually actually we should say the horse eventually fell uh the it, horse it is okay horse, though. yeah the horse is okay uh, the horse uh, took a corner a little too hot uh, <laughs> as if it were the Giro and uh, but yeah. it got up, and as far as we know, I'm only making these jokes because, as far as we know, the horse is fine. I, I wouldn't. Uh, yeah, I it wouldn't. was confirmed. Some, somebody on Facebook confirmed that the horse is fine. Yeah. Okay. Good. Because like I don't want to keep it while horse. I was down. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but uh, to me, it was just sort of just another example where it these stories make the other the other media outlets that aren't covering cycling, and people ask me about them. They say, "Oh, wow, that there was a horse, and and what happened? What happened to the horse? What happened to the race?" and and I just say, oh, it, it, yeah, it was on the course, then it wasn't on the course, and then they just kept going, and yeah, that, that happens all like kind of all the time. Maybe it's not a horse, but yeah, there's dogs, there's, uh, there's fans holding signs into the middle of the road, and they're like the biggest news story about the Tour de France apparently. Uh, and but I, I feel like as a racing fan, we just see it maybe a little too much. I don't know. I, I guess that's what makes our sport so interesting. I, I want to return to a previous question, Dane. I want to return to your to your what else could teams do question right yeah because if you yeah. ju- if you just if you just you know pulled up the last 3k uh of this race you would have been like well you know that feels inevitable sd works was far and away the strongest team in the race and then nothing else is going to happen but it, you you also mentioned there that faulkner was able to get like a sizable lead solo because of this sort of stop start nature of what was happening behind and i i I don't know, Ruth. I'd like your your take on this as well. Like, 
was that a moment of really good timing? Was there was it a moment that others could have taken advantage of? Was it just the fact that it was just her going that that led to that kind of not working in the end, but coming pretty close? I mean, pretty really really close to to working. Like what 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 was it about the that moment and that attack which Dane, I think you said earlier it was a bit of a weird one that kind of went slowly. Or what was Cosmo? A bit of a weird kind of slow attack. Uh, how did that work? Why did that work? Ish. I think to me it's at a point right. Like we'd ha- just had Swinkle off the front with an attack, so they'd already kind of gotten used to the fact that maybe somebody was up the road. It's at a moment where you're on a big paved road. It's kind of smooth. People are probably eating and drinking. You have 40k left to go, so everyone's just getting mentally prepared for like the really really hard part of the race that's about to come. And then they're probably like, oh, it's Faulkner. Like, yeah, she's really strong. We'll keep an eye on it, but like we don't need to go with her right now. We're waiting for a more kind of, I guess, iconic moment to be going on the steep dough climb, something like that. So people just kind of like let it go a little bit just because it's like, oh, I mm. don't want to work. And most of the time at that point, a lot of the domestiques have done a lot of work. They're not there anymore. The peloton is smaller. I still felt like it was a pretty good size peloton at that time, but like a lot of the workers have been gone and have been given a specific job to make sure that their lead rider is in position going into the next gravel section. Um, so then when she went, and then you could definitely see Movistar and SD Work start to do a lot more work as we got a couple more kilometers down the road. Um, and then, yeah, I think like actually as it reduced, the only thing that I think would have been interesting to see what would have changed would have been if Annemiek Van Vluten wasn't even in the race, because although she wasn't um, like performing maybe as the way we have seen her in the past, just being there is just like a deterrent to everybody it's like everybody else is just like oh she won't want to lose so she'll do it or she also had a teammate in liana lippert who's proved to be super strong lately so you know if you were the one without a teammate like nevia doma i'm not sure that puck really knows she's super strong obviously but maybe she's still learning uh it kind of shows she does like a lot of work necessarily when she doesn't have to so there was that um and then cecilia like if if they hadn't had those other characters close to them maybe they wouldn't have been hesitation it did seem like they struggled on the climb anyway so who really knows if that would have been an option to go with Kopecky when she bridged over to Demi but I do think that by her just being there that she um was yeah just a deterrent my my big what if is, is Marta Cavalli because I feel like like Utra Bludui was so close to bridging up to the two SD Works riders and with another strong contender on her team in the group there, I think we're looking at a totally different tactical situation in the finale. So hmm. we should talk about that the catch. Uh the the moment where uh Faulkner was caught was uh there was RG Bargy, which is uh I don't know, one of my favorite Britishisms. I I've <laughs> uh, I've really come to love that one. I don't know if you can hear it in, in Ruth's accent there. She you know British parents. Uh, I was so, born in England, yeah. Yeah, you were born in England. Maybe you can give us a, a brief history of the RG Bargy, some other episode we're not going to do right now. <laughs> well, uh, I do also want to get your take, though. I mean, on the level of RG Bargy, uh, where do you rate that, Ruth? Was that uh, acceptable RG Bargy? Was it unacceptable RG Bargy? <laughs> I mean, I'm still kind of giggling it when we bring it up because I think she was just probably so dead at the time that she was like, oh, no, what's happening? And I was like, oh, I'll close the door. I'll close the door because it didn't make a difference in anything at the end <laughs> right. of the day. And it was just a little bit it was a little bit funny to watch to me. I was just like, oh, no, what's happening? Um, but it wasn't. I mean, you can close a door if you want to close a door, but they weren't sprinting. And we've seen it like I you know, remember. Uh, what was it at the time, whatever SD works way back when Mara Abbott was racing the Juro and they all like boxed her in and Mara didn't know what to do. So she like chucked her water bottle on the ground. So like I've seen it in racing before, like, but I mean, in the end it didn't, it didn't change well, anything. I think it was just her being, <laughs> trying to do everything she could. <laughs> it was like, it, she closed the door in a, in a wall full of doors. Like there were more doors <laughs> elsewhere. So it didn't, it didn't really matter. Okay. That door closed. Bowling is like, ah, oh, I'm just going to, there's another, there's another door to your left. I don't know if you knew that, Kristen, but I'm going to go that way yep. instead. So in the end, yeah, like you said, there's not a not a massive impact on the finale, although maybe sort of a frustrating moment uh, and, and, a, and a bit of like, you know, even a small gap, because there was a bit of a gap there that was then created to, to Kopecky, uh, even a small gap when you're that fried, you're not going to want to close it. And, he, and, and she had to, so... 
I mean, we saw how close that finish was, right? Like that, another yeah. another elbow or two, or she, you know, Volering rides really tries to force that issue and maybe like bangs into into Faulkner's real rear wheel and really has to because she kind of like eased off after she bumped into the fencing, rode back around, caught up to Kopecky. but like that costs you a lot. And when the when the margin is that close at the line, you have to imagine that every little extra effort is, is, is taking something out of you. But as far as the argy-bargy itself goes, from my uninformed Category 3 perspective, like, one of my pet peeves is someone riding in a place that is objectively not a good place to ride and then getting mad when something bad happens to them. Um, and, you know, I, I think Vollering saw a space to ride and just figured that Faulkner wasn't going to move over. And then when she moved over, you know, really, really tried to force her way through there when she clearly didn't she wasn't in a place where she could realistically push her way through. So it, it was just, for me, it was just the, it was a very stubborn kind of from both riders. It looked stubborn, at least to me. And I think that's, you know, part of that is like, that's what it takes to be a pro racer is that level of, of, of hard headedness. Uh, but no, I, like I was a little bit surprised how mad the internet was, which I maybe should never be, but there were a, a lot of people who were kind of calling for Faulkner's head. And I was like, Whoa, like, <laughs> This is this is a racing incident. This is okay. I feel like if she'd swerved another time, then that might have been valid. Yeah. But like a single swing over the right, I mean you, you could you could absolutely make the argument that like at the first swing she didn't really know She didn't look back what, what was happening. She didn't look back. You know, she was just swinging, right? Mm-hmm. Which I mean if you watched uh, any of the riders that were coming in behind them, there was plenty of swinging happening, right? Like people are literally like postmanning across uh, uh, up that up that climb. So I'm yeah, I, I don't not like the classiest move I've ever seen to stick an elbow like that, but uh, at, the, at the end, I've seen far worse. And to be honest, when you're going like eight miles an hour up a final climb into Siena, the, the consequences yeah. for something like that are relatively low as well. Yeah, that climb is super steep. I, I feel like it's it's steep enough that I'm willing to kind of give anybody a pass for a, a momentary lapse uh, on, a, on a climb like that. All right, well, we, you mentioned, Cosmo, the what happened next, which was the sprint. And... To me, that I was actually I really enjoyed watching a teammate head to head. I don't have a, I don't have any like major qualms uh, that I'm gonna write a big story about with teammates deciding not to do that and and say okay you're gonna you get to win this one and and I feel like every every so often that that happens where teammates decide okay nice job and you can take the win. Uh, but I, I do really want to see more of what we saw, which is two teammates racing each other. Uh, and it's fun. It was dramatic. It was close. Uh, and I kind of hope we get more of that. So we, we, I posted a little bit about this on the escape Instagram and somebody made a good point, which is that neither of them looked happy at the finish line, which tells me that yes, they were, they were racing each other, but that, like there was something, there was some, there was some communication errors somewhere in there. And then I'm going to, I'm going to read a quote out from Bullering. Uh, in the moment that I looked around to celebrate with her, she overtook me. <laughs> then I was like, is she doing a lead out for me? But then I felt she was really going for it. And I was like, okay, we're not teammates anymore. Right? So there was a bit of a, and she, and I, I guess part of the reason why she looked so put out at the finish line, Volering, I mean, is that she thought she lost that. Uh, and she thought that essentially she'd been pipped by a teammate who had gone immediately into combative mode as opposed to celebratory mode that she was kind of ready for so you know bad bad taste in everybody's mouth is it means that something probably went a little bit wrong and i would agree with you dane that i think the you i would prefer to see them race it out than than you know rock paper scissors across the finish line which we've seen elsewhere but that didn't seem like i would i would rather they they turn to each other and go we're sprinting we're sprinting and then it happens right as opposed to what appeared to be a a sort of semi-sneaky maneuver by by kopecky I think it would make sense if, if you had a situation where a director comes over the radio and says, you guys are away, uh, you're going to sprint for it, go for it, whoever wins, wins, and have fun with it, whatever. But going into Siena, they were still making the catch, and then the catch was made on that stupidly steep gradient, double digits, where there's fans lining the road. I'm assuming the uh, the communication was just much harder than normal. I mean, it's not like they were off the front in a break that was clearly going to succeed you know, and they knew that 10 minutes from the finish, they only really knew one minute from the finish line that they were going to be contesting the win. So I, it makes sense that they wouldn't have 
done much communication beforehand. Uh, it would be, I don't know, I feel like that would be a poor form to be discussing whether you're going to sprint each other for the win before you've made the catch. Uh, <laughs> not, not that I think it's, I think it's what could have been smart to do it, but I think it would have been a bad form, bad form to, to do that. So I, I get why they didn't. Ruth, I want your take on it. What do you think? I just think as a director, what would you tell them? Just say like, okay, well, you're both really strong. You both really want to win. And to me too, in that, I was trying to also, again, put myself in that situation, right? Like if I'd been in a race, what would I have done? And to me on my team, I was a smaller rider. I wasn't, you know, Lizzie Dagnan, you know, I wasn't Elisa Longo Borghini. I was Ruth. So if I had been in that situation with these superstars on my team, I would have just assumed they were going to win. You know, it wouldn't have really been a question, but, you know, Vollering and Kopecky are kind of more on the same level. They both have won really big races. They both have this ego and neither of them are going to look at each other and be like, oh yeah, I don't get paid nearly as much as you do to do this job. Obviously you're going to win. So they looked at each other and were like, I want to win this race. Like I'm not going to back down. And so I just, what would you say? Like, how would you as even as a director in the radio say like, okay, do this. So to me, I'm just, I don't, yeah. Okay. Maybe they should have chatted, but again, there wasn't really any time to chat about it. I also wouldn't have felt that they would talk about it before they caught Faulkner. Cause it was so close. I'm sure they both had confidence they were going to catch her. Um, but yeah I don't know how you really discuss it and to me it did seem like Demi was just going as hard as she could up that climb and then when um yeah Kopecky came around she was a bit surprised <laughs> Kelly you mentioned that they both looked upset and I actually thought that Kopecky looked like smiling and like man what a what a rousing finish and Vollering looked over like WTF like very <laughs> ups like what did you just do kind of thing uh it was and it was interesting to watch the post-race interviews with Vollering because Eurosport had a reporter basically there to tell her, hey, you're you're the winner. And she was still very kind of cold and sort of warmed up to like, okay, I won. I'm happy now. And you could see the things she sort of said, like her attack went at 17K and she was very specific, like how we discussed, like that was the pre-race plan. Uh, and she kind of, the, the way she described Kopecky coming across on the next climb was very, like she was said, literally, then suddenly Lotta was with me. Um, and then Lot is a killer. I was a bit surprised by her action. It was a bit excited in the finish. Very much, it seemed to me like she was completely taken aback by everything that happened kind of from 10K on. And very much like, uh, I th she said something in the official winner's interview where she was very much like, I really like this race. And she kind of cried a little bit because uh, I think it was Chantel Black who told her, like, hey, you need to believe in yourself. Like, you can do this race. And she had all these things happen, like that horse jumping out in the course, the surprise arrival of her teammate, who is objectively, I think, on paper, a faster sprinter than her, to kind of have all that happen and to kind of come into the finish and still win this race. Like, that's, a, that's an emotional journey, I feel like. I, to me, the, one of the biggest standouts is the fact that no matter what happens uh, with the, whoever is standing on top of the podium, it's just another big win for SD Works, by the way. Uh, and the team has been great to start the year, as they so often are. Uh, when we were playing the podcast, I was trying to come up with fun segments to do. And one thing that I really want to do in this show is, is talk about some unheralded performances. And Cosmo, as you pointed out, there was a... a a performance from the SD Works team that may be a little bit less heralded than, you know, finishing on, on uh, the top step of the podium or, or in second. So, yeah, you're, you're unheralded rider for the, for the race, Cosmo. Actually, you know what? First, a uh, little, let's go do a little sound effect. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go look for a sound effect here. Um, all right, here we go. All right, Cosmo, you're unheralded rider uh, for this race. Go for it. Mishka Bredewald, I think I'm saying that correctly, of, of SD Works, did a ton of, during that stop-start racing, really worked hard to keep everything together, and then made a big effort at the bottom of the uh, Cole Pinzuto to really line things out to set up the eventual contenders in the race. And I think it's easy to talk about how strong SD Works is uh, based on you know these superstar riders, but... There are a lot of people setting things up and making sure they can perform at their max. So I thought that she had a great day. I think they've done a really nice job of that throughout their existence, whether they've been SD Works or Volstomans, in having not just the, uh, well, yeah, now it's the Volerings and the Kopeckis, and it used to be the 
I mean, a long list of, of stars, really. Van der Breggen and uh, Chantal Vandenbroek-Black, and then before that, uh, Dagnan. Yeah, but they've always also had just a, a quite a few really strong writers who have been willing to kind of put their own ambitions aside for the team, and I think that's, yeah, uh, that's a big part of the reason why they've been such a dominant squad. It's just such a strong team, top to bottom. Uh, and there's only, a, a, I think, only a handful of other teams, I think you can really say that, just top to bottom they've got. Uh, stars at the top and also a lot of quality and sort of the domestiques as well. Uh, anyway, thanks for heralding. Um, I, I think we should do as much heralding as we can so I can make that stupid sound as often as I can. Uh, all right. I think I think we've covered the bases for Strata Bianca women. Uh, do we want to jump into Strata Bianca men? And if so, without any preparation, Cosmo, would you be willing to give us a 30-second rundown of just a really quick rundown of um, what it was that led to the winning of the race? I, I can attempt to do so. Um, okay. We, I think we got coverage from about 90K. Uh, there was a three-rider break. Um, around 50K to go, uh, Alberto Betiol jumped out of the group, um, got a little bit of a response, I think, from Bagioli on Quickstep Sudal and also one Tom Pidcock. Uh, he, he also got a response from Kaylee uh, in our text yes. messages. He uh, you you quote like a spicy betiol. Uh, is, that, is that said so like he, that's a spicy meatball? Is that I, is that's that... what I assume. Yeah, so I have Italian heritage. Um, I can say things like that. <laughs> there we go. Uh, and yeah, so he drew a response from multiple people, including Kaylee. I I was actually surprised at the relatively small size of the response, especially given where Pogacar had attacked in a last year's race. Um, but uh, those those guys got away. It was pretty calm until Vanderpool basically attacked the feed zone at 42k to go, and then didn't really do anything after that except uh, consume camera time. Uh, there were a series of attacks that he did not or was not able to follow, uh, eventually ending with a group of about six riders around 35k to go. Um, can, I, can I make a very small Vanderpool point? I mean, it was obvious that he was off his game a little bit, right? I mean, you know, 95%, whatever it is. Um, but if, if we didn't have enough proof from just the result and all the watching him get dropped that we, that we got to do in the sort of 15, 20 minutes afterward, uh, I feel like when you're feeling good, and Ruth, correct me if I'm wrong here. When you're feeling really good, you don't tend to pick the feed zone as your, as your <laughs> attack point. Uh, like the, the slow part, right? Like, Generally, the people that attack at the slow bits, one, it's you're kind of doomed generally, uh, and two, it's because they're like, oh, thank God, it's slow, and I'm going to go fast now, right? And so, in general, Thunderpole would be one of those type of riders that would uh, attack at the very hardest moment of the race and use that to sort of break the elastic, and the fact that he was attacking in the feed zone was just yet another bit of proof that he's not quite probably where he would like to be right now. <laughs> okay. So yeah, around around 30k to go. I should say Pitcock went through the caught up to the break, went through the break. Uh 30k to go, a group of six riders are behind him trying to chase and not doing a very good job, particularly <laughs> two Yumbo riders, uh Atish Benot and Attila Falters, like Walter. Walter? Walter. Uh, coolest Walter? coolest name in my yeah, opinion a pretty in the cool race. Name. Uh if if your name is Attila, like you have to have a really cool name to beat that in my opinion. So good on good on Attila Valter. We're gonna have a little bit more on Attila on this week's placeholders because Johnny actually went and hung out at his house when Giro started in Hungary and like chatted with his boyhood, you know, bike mechanic and a bunch <laughs> of other interesting stuff. So anyway, yeah. tune into that one later this week. Well, he was he was super strong. Uh he just didn't seem to be on the same page as Benot. Um and this was a pretty strong group of riders. Uh, I would say Benoit, Walter, uh, Quinn Simmons, Maddie Mahorich, uh, Madois. Is that? I'm missing somebody in there. Uh, Rui Costa. Rui Costa was in there too, like kind of defying his, his 36 Blast years of age. Blast from the past. Yeah. Blast from the past. I, 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 he's won more bike races this year than most. So I was kind of surprised, but also kind of not surprised to see him up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, they came within literal seconds of Pidcock. They had they had him in sight, I think kind of dead to rights on a few sections of road and just couldn't get it together. And Pidcock really kept his head on straight. Like, he kept feeding, he kept taking food, he kept riding smart, didn't blow himself up trying to get away, did very good descending, very competent use of the energy he had, and 
kind of as they sat up, really put in a big dig around 2K to go and suddenly had 30 seconds on the bottom of the climb into Siena and never looked back. He also seemed completely wrecked in the post-race interview, like in a way, beat up in a way that I don't think I've ever seen him. Like normally he's pretty peppy, feisty post-race interview and he was almost struggling to put sentences together. So I think he went all in on that one. I feel like one of the great things about Strada is the way that it beats you up in like in multiple ways because there's there's the there's the climb at the end so obviously that's very demanding but then there's also the the, the terrain there's the dust like you get to the end of that race and I I would think you'd be pretty beat up I mean okay if I did any any world tour race if I did any like cat four race I'd be beat up but this race more than most I think really does a number on people and it it's it was a well earned win for Pitcock who I thought kind of needed a win like this we in the bike media we talk about pitcock all the time he's obviously an extremely talented bike racer who can win not just road races uh he happens to be a decent mountain biker uh and a decent cyclocross racer uh (laughs) reigning olympic champion he happens to have some medals ago reigning world cyclocross champion uh but at the same time when it comes to road racing he's often been up there in the last year uh he's been there or thereabouts, which is another one of my favorite Britishisms, uh, in, a, in a lot of races. But the actual big wins have been kind of hard to come by for him so far. He's had a few, but not that many. And I think for him to win it at Strada like this was, was a big deal because it kind of cemented, okay, he's not just a, a, an Olympic champion, not just the cyclocross champion. Uh, I think he really is this year. That I think one of those things where you can build on wins, I think that's going to happen for him. I, I, I see that. I see good things for this Tom Pidcock kid. I think he won because of his descending. Ooh, yeah. And I think that that is something that maybe isn't that surprising because of his yeah. skill set. Uh, oh, I'm not I'm not I'm not even just talking about when he was initially creating that gap where you know there's that there's that shot of him passing the motorcycle that's pretty wild. Uh that certainly helped, right? The, sec- the couple seconds he got there. But if you'll recall, like there were a couple other riders sort of in and about him and, he, and you know, he caught up to that group that was in front and he basically got rid of everybody going down uh, with the exception of Alessandro DeMarchi, who he finally got rid of going up. But I mean, just, just think about how much, how much uh, energy you save by taking just a couple seconds every single time you go down a hill and essentially, you know, not being able to, to soft pedal on the way back up, but you have those free seconds, right? And he can lose a little bit on the on the way up and save a bit of energy, and then get those seconds right back on the way down. And his his the time gaps are always sort of notoriously uh, shaky <laughs> in in RCS races uh, and in Strada Bianchi in, in particular. But uh, it was clear even just by watching sort of the gaps, uh, but not the time gaps, but like watching literally the the distance between, particularly early on, between him and the, and other groups. He was taking significant time for free, right? For no energy, extra energy, energy expenditure whatsoever. And I think that was huge. If you if you look at sort of the gap at the end there, which ended up not being that big, and as you said, Cosmo, he was very nearly caught a couple different times. A couple seconds here or there, I think, was the difference, and and it came from an incredible skill set. I think another thing that he didn't waste energy on, got some free energy on. Maybe he didn't look back like at all. And you mentioned that, Cosmo, but I, I think. Old school bike racers and DSs were probably very pleased with this uh, final twenty minutes because he did not. He was not looking back to check the gap. You, he was just clearly he was focused on moving forward the whole time. Uh, and when he did look back, it was it was so noticeable that that he hadn't been that I thought, wait, wow, he, he did that. He actually looked back. Uh, it was like one or two times in the entire final twenty minutes, maybe. Uh, and I think that to me again, that just that says a lot about. Uh, his drive, and I think it's also just sort of where he is right now. He, he's that he's really, really motivated to win a bike race, and he's going to give everything to do that. And yeah, he went out and won it at, at, at Strada. I am a little curious. I mean, we you mentioned Cosmo the lack of cooperation a little bit from the two Yumbo riders. They were they were the team that had firepower in numbers. I mean, it was two riders instead of one. It wasn't like they had eight. Uh, I'm. I'm curious because when I'm watching this race, I'm thinking, even if these two collaborate, which they should have, one one of them should have ridden for the other one, I think, I still don't know if they would have caught Pitcock. I mean, it was that close that, yeah, that might be seem like it's an obvious thing that they could have caught Pitcock. At, at some points, it was so close. But it, to me, it seemed like they neither one was that 
strong enough to be pulling Pitcock back? I don't know. What do you, what do you all think? Could they have caught Pitcock if they worked together? Yeah, I think I think they would have purely just because if they'd worked together, then it would have motivated everybody. So it wouldn't have just been two people chasing him right. back. It would have been that whole bunch of people chasing them back. Um, but because the two of them obviously weren't working together, it just, again, neutralized everybody else because everyone else is like, well, I'm alone without a teammate, so why would I pull your butt up here to him to just get beaten by you in the finish? Um, so I think they would have come back, but I don't think that they would have beaten Pitcock. I think he was on a day where it would have been so hard to beat him, and I think like him not looking back to the whole time just is even more evidence of how good he felt, and he said in his post-race interview that he knew that week he was going to have a great day, and so I think he would have got caught, and I think it could have been really exciting if he had been, but I still think he would have won. I would agree. I, th- there, was, there was a moment, and I don't have... The, the kilometer mark in front of me, but it was very close to the end where Valter uh, got dropped, clawed his way back, and instead of just hitting the front and driving it and, and beginning to start that sort of rotation and, and beginning to pull a couple seconds back, he kind of like sat in the back for a minute, recovered, and then attacked again, right? And it was when him and Tej Benut were, were kind of going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And that, to me, felt like the one moment where... Like, you can try the one-two thing, right, as teammates. See if you can get somebody up the road or something. Although, I would say that the, the priority should have been getting Pidcock back first. But it was clear at that point that the one-two wasn't going to work, right? So, at that point, Valter, who had just been dropped, it was on him to, to hit the front and just empty it, right? Empty the gas tank and see how close you can get. And I think it basically showed that they didn't have enough confidence in Benute and his ability to get up that climb in front of the rest of that group or it was a function of Walter just sort of being on a completely different wavelength but that that's that's what it showed to me is that they they didn't have that plan settled well enough uh and maybe the directors weren't in their ear (laughs) sternly enough uh and it and as a result yeah it, it, it the second i saw him attack i was like ah it's over pickcock's got it right it was it was immediate from that moment uh, to me, that's sort of a rare uh, occurrence from Yumbo. I think we've generally seen them be very well marshaled uh, across their many, many different talented riders. They, they tend to do a pretty good job of working for each other, uh, putting, for instance, a Wout Van Aert to work for somebody else. Uh, yeah, I was a little bit surprised at that uh, kerfuffle. Uh, the, the, lack of, the lack of cooperation was just surprising. You don't see that from this team very often. Well, Benoit was like waving his arms around. <laughs> he was he was annoyed. Yes. Like, he was really yeah. annoyed, and and I, that kind of comes back to what you were talking about earlier, Ruth. Which is like, I mean, Walter's uh, like he's a he's a good rider, but he is not Tej Benoit, right? And so at some point, he should have probably realized that and said, "My job is now to help my teammate out, who makes three times as much money, and everybody's actually heard of." <laughs> and try to get them to the finish line and he never did that so i would imagine that there were um i would imagine there were some stern words uh after the finish line and in the yumbo team bus because i can't imagine that went as they would have liked it to yeah during the broadcast as i was watching i was thinking it was a seven of ten performance uh the waving of the of the hands from Tishbino, the gesticulations and i figure if that's what we're seeing on tv that probably was not a great conversation in private uh i'm, I'm, I'm assuming he was not happy yeah uh all right so yumbo maybe not doing everything they could but maybe it doesn't matter maybe pickcock wins anyway uh i i did have a little bit of a uh uh, I, I I think we can mention an unheralded rider. I don't know if I'm going to do the the sound for you, Kaylee, because the guy finished second, uh, <laughs> so he gets he's a little bit heralded. I feel like I don't know that he needs he's, a whole horn here. He's relatively heralded, uh, uh, yeah. But Valentin Madua was was a very impressive rider on the day. The 26 year old from Groupama FTJ, and I know you like him, Kaylee, because you tend to like riders of his classification Doomed and. <laughs> doomed in French. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I I really I, lo- I love a good doomed Frenchman. And no, so the reason why I, I have him as my sort of unheralded rider for this particular day, one, because none of us really did much heralding of him prior, uh, prior to this particular 
one day race, I should say. But the other reason is because nobody else in the group he was in seemed to herald him particularly much, right? He just kind of floated the entire time. And part of the reason I was just watching him and he was pulling less. He was just, he was, he was super calm, super collected, not a name in that particular group that was getting mentioned all that much. I mean, Mahorich and, and Bonot were definitely getting mentioned a heck of a lot more by the commentators. Uh, we're doing a lot more. We're a lot more active. But Marawa was, was, was just sitting in the right spot the entire final 50K and never really stuck his nose in the wind, never had to close any massive gaps. And, well, we saw the... We saw the result, right? I mean, he was the, he was the the first post Tom Pidcock into Siena, so a a un, a relatively heralded rider with a low key performance that ended up with a fantastic result. And from that same team, and I think this is a theme we're seeing from Groupama in general, which is this team starting to really care about the classics because Madua now has finished on the podium at Flanders and Strada. Uh, I was very impressed with. The ride, maybe not surprised with the ride, but impressed with the ride of Roman Gregoire, who finished eighth at Strada. Uh, and I think it's worth noting that this is a team, Groupamba, that has not really had too much success uh, turning young prospects into big stars. And the, the main reason being that they just don't get many of the young prospects. Those riders go to Ineos and UAE and Yumbo uh, lately. But Gregoire is a really major young talent. He's 20 years old and he won the the uh, younger rider versions of Liège, uh, and he won, I think he won the Baby Giro, he won a stage at uh, Lavenir, and for them to get him to sign with Groupama, and not one of those other teams that I mentioned that tends to get those young prospects, I think that's a, that's a big get for this Groupama team, and yeah, he went out and showed uh, at, at Strada, he's, he's already top 10 at Strada material, despite being I mean, he literally just turned 20 in January. I'm very impressed in general with the way that Groupama FDJ has really yeah, worked hard to kind of build that classic squad into something that could be respectable and, and maybe get a big result here. I look forward to Gregoire uh, joining the list of doomed Frenchmen. Uh, it's not quite doomed yet, but he'll get there. He'll get there. Uh, I want to talk about Rui Costa because because I just if you if you go check out like the pro cycling stats uh, like current rankings right, which are not exactly the same as the UCI rankings. They're they're actually. I think a little bit more sophisticated. Um, he's currently number one for the, the season thus far. And this is Rui Costa we're talking about. So for those who are, have only followed the sport sort of in the last couple of years, you may not even know who this is, right? Like he's been almost completely silent since his kind of heyday in what have been 2012. 2013 was really his year at 2014. And he kind of went pretty quiet since 2014, which I will remind you is nine years ago now. And all of a sudden, he's back. He's fourth at Strada Bianca and, and, and is the number one rider in the world at the moment, according to Pro Cycling Stats. What's going on with Rui Costa? I guess it's the Intermarché Circus Wanty Magic Touch. Uh, he left UAE after six years there. I, more than that, because he was with Lamprey forever, uh, or for a few years before that. Uh, so maybe it was just the change of scenery. Did him, did him good. Because, yeah, it wasn't just Strada, because he, he was, uh, what, he won the Volta la Comunità Valenciana. Uh, he was pretty good in the Algarve, in his home country of, of Portugal. And uh, I, I, for one, am very excited to see Rui Costa doing well, because I actually really like Rui Costa. And I, I think if you watch enough bike races, you will hear commentators make comments about Rui Costa's style. Then uh, you will pretty quickly pick up on the fact that everybody talks about him like a wheel sucker, which... I think he probably he is. Do you, uh, I mean, do you know where that comes from? It comes from the 2013 World Championship, which I thought so, he I thought he did a damn good job that year of winning that bike race, and everybody talks about it like Spain lost, which is first of all they had to they be did. a winner, <laughs> uh, yeah. And second of all, he played those two riders very well. Yes, uh, Valverde and, and Joaquin Rodriguez that year. Uh, in any case. I think if you're good at that, that's fine. That 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 can be your thing. You can be good at riding in people's wheels and winning bike races. There's nothing wrong with that. I I'm happy to see him back. I just didn't realize he was still racing. <laughs> 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 it, 
I, that's mean. That's mean of me to say. Uh, but it's kind of actually true. Like, I mean, he's, he's, he's been pretty anonymous for a couple of years. And, and whatever it is that he's uh, figured out, that he's, you know, in a, in a happy place again, uh, great. Because he's an entertaining bike racer. And I like entertaining bike racers. I kind of hope he can hold it through to June because that's when the Tour de Suisse is. And he is, to me, he's like the undisputed greatest Tour de Suisse racer of all time because he won three of them in a row and he crushed everybody at the Tour de Suisse every year in that little, in that span where he was really good. He was just the dominant Tour de Suisse racer and that was his niche, which, you know, who knew that was a niche? Uh, but it was his. Uh, <laughs> Moving on from Augusta. I think we can move on from Strada. I feel like we've really, we've Monday morning, we've Monday morning DS'd Strada pretty well. I don't, I don't know if non-American football fans are going to kind of get what that means. In American football, the games are played on Sunday, and on Monday people talk about what happened, and we call them Monday morning quarterbacks. Yeah, we're Monday morning DSing here. That's what we've done for the last well, 40 minutes, 50 minutes. Should we talk Paranese? Yeah, so as of record time, we've got one stage of Paranese in the books, and I actually thought it was, first of all, it was entertaining, and second of all, we had a lot to talk about for it being a sprint stage. Uh I think by the time we do another show, assuming Kaylee lets us do another show, uh, we will have a lot more to talk about with Paranis. Assuming enough people sign up. That's really, yeah. <laughs> that's really where we're at. So, but really, just go, go do that, please, because we want to do another show. Uh, yep. we, yeah, we've had one stage of Paranis. We'll have a lot more to talk about with the next show. But the, the one stage of Paranis did give us, I think, maybe, maybe two talking points. Uh, for, for starters, Sudol Quickstep, the lead out, I think is, uh, yeah, it's... It's going strong, unsurprisingly, probably. Uh, but I thought they did a great job of putting Tim Merlier into position to win today's stage. And that's a team that I think shows if the leadout's really good and the sprinters are really good, you're going to win a lot of bike races. Uh, and, and they've done that already. This was his fourth win, Merlier, uh, after today. The other big thing from Paradis I thought was very interesting for the first stage is that Tere Pogacar was, uh, he was in, in the mood to show off how strong he was. And I really liked that. Uh, he went hunting for some bonus seconds, and he got them. Got a pretty uh, substantial... He got a six-second lead uh, already over most of his rivals, uh, and I love that. It's it's Perry Nice, and he's out there doing his thing. Pogacar really seems uh, to want to make bike racing exciting to watch, sort of regardless, and maybe even to his own detriment in terms of results. And I'm totally here for that. I'm 100% okay with him having fewer palmares and making more people, you know, find a relatively mundane first stage of a relatively mundane stage race interesting. Um, not to erase the excitement of a I sprint, applaud him. but yeah. Absolutely applaud him. We should, we should also applaud uh, Nelson Palace because Nielsen yeah, Palace he definitely it. got up there and, and got active today. So good on Nielsen. He's done a lot in the last couple of weeks, and I'm just really excited to, to talk about American racers on, on podcasts because like I don't know we, we generally on the men's side don't have that opportunity uh, as often as the women's side so yeah hooray Nielsen Palace for trying something he didn't he didn't really make much of it but he tried and you know he was out there for a while he was yeah, out, yeah, yeah go points. for it yeah go for yeah, it I don't, I don't know what he was doing though like it was, <laughs> he looked really strong but I didn't know I was like couldn't you be doing this at a different time I don't know it's day one he did but get he the KOM looked... points though right yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He did that. Points. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, and the, it was after that that it didn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Then he was just kind of out there um, chasing potatoes. Uh, didn't did Pog get six seconds right? Yeah, six seconds. Mm-hmm. That could be really relevant later because yeah. there's a team time trial in this Paranese, and I don't know if you've looked at uh, Jonas Vingegaard's uh, team here at at this Paranese, but it is terrifying from a team time trial perspective. And I can't imagine UAE is going to be able to match that. So I think, I think Pog is going to need every single second he can possibly get here. I assume that Roglic also imagined that Pug wouldn't match his time trial at the Tour de France that one time. So never say never. True. Uh, True. But yeah, I agree. I think, and, and uh, Vingigo didn't get any time. He was fourth, I think. On that climb, so he just missed the bonus seconds. So uh, I don't know, a really, really nice job by by UAE to kind of snatch those those six seconds. Uh, and yeah, by the time we're doing this next weekend, assuming we're doing this next weekend, uh, we'll already we'll be able to talk about who won, and we'll have all kinds more 
Monday morning DS to do for Paranese. Uh, meanwhile, also, obviously, because it's Paranese time, Toronto Adriatico is about to kick off. So that's what you have to look forward to this week. You get both Paranese and Toronto. Uh, before we go too much farther into that last little bit of the show, the the sort of the mini mini recon ride uh, where we're going to look ahead just to see what's coming up. Uh, I wanted to point out two little news stories. First of all, Caleb Ewan, another photo finish in which he did not win today. Uh, he and won, I, <laughs> just to be clear. He was announced as the winner. Uh, huh? Caleb no, Ewan? No, no, no. Ewan was announced as the loser, was he not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was announced as the winner, and then he was given the loss. Yeah, yeah but he actually won. So it, he, he just posted a bunch of, like, I don't know who sent him these photos, but he just posted a bunch of photos on Twitter from different angles where it is very obvious that he won that bike race. Whoa. whoa. So that, that seems, we should talk about that. Uh, what, what, what's <laughs> happening there? Who, who, who do we call? Basically, the, the race, the, the finish line camera was really low quality. And, you know, the, the pixels didn't work. Like, the, it wasn't even really lined up with the finish line. <laughs> Classic move. Uh, and, yeah, it, 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 you can't tell. You just straight up can't tell. And, you know, I don't know. that they, they thought, who's the guy that they ended up handing it to? Gerben Tyson. Yes, Gerben there Tyson. we go. Gerben Tyson. Um, and which we're definitely saying wrong. I apologize to Gerben. Uh, but yeah, like I said, you and you and tweeted these these photos where they're kind of from like the front and to the right a little bit, and so you, you can't really like you can't line up the wheels right, but you can see that one of them is just like three or four inches further over the line than the other. I feel like you you should say something. You should. You should uh... <laughs> Hmm. They're, pretty, they're pretty compelling but but again like what do you do i mean we talked about this on the placeholders before like at some point i think it should be a tie if you don't know then both of them won and i know that's deeply deeply unsatisfying to a sprinter who's like i don't want that but like if you can't tell you can't tell i feel like that's a uh that's what they do in skiing like yeah. the 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 timing goes to a thousandth and if you are tied to a hundredth of a second then you are tied say if only there were some sort of governing body to have <laughs> rules that every race with their certification uh, would have to follow for finish line cameras and yeah if, yeah uh, alas well I, I mean I feel bad I feel bad for Caleb Ewan because he's lost every single photo finish that I can think of uh, as of late and in fact this one he actually won and yet still lost in so real time I'm, I'm looking at these photos and man it I, yeah I feel bad so he tweeted I kind of think I won thoughts with a photo of him <laughs> kind of yeah kind of looking like he won uh it's it's close i i kind of agree with him uh and yeah the for the real like to really make it worse they i think they did announce him as the winner and then they took it away uh which is a real bummer i've been in a situation like this and it is really not a fun situation (laughs) when was this uh, it was Provence Field a few years ago, and Vollering and I were in a photo finish, um, and I thought she had won, and so I came to the podium to be like second place, and then they're like, no, no, you won, and then somebody else came and said, no, no, you didn't win, and then they were like, no, oh, you man. did win, and I was like, I don't care if I got first and second anymore, but I just need to not keep with the chopping and changing, all right? Is there, is there like <laughs> a team the attorney? I did win, but <laughs> I don't, there's just like too many, you know people that don't have an opinion or well, do have an opinion about it and it's just so close i agree ties should be a thing because it's just silly is, is there at some point it's silly does your director like go to the is there some sort of process at least to like appeal this or to get details on i feel like i mean it's it's all up to the commissaires the judges on the day it's the lead <sighs> commissaires at the end of the day their decision they get to make the call but they get to take their time doing it and there's a lot of people speculating around while they're making that decision that come to you and tell you different things <laughs> yeah can we start a fake controversy here I, I, this is a real controversy. Yeah, we didn't have to start it. This to me seems like you know. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. This race was in Belgium, and they gave it to the Belgian guy. Uh, well, mm. yeah. But it was part of the Lotto <laughs> series. That's true, and he and races for the Lotto uh, team. He rides for for, which makes me wonder why doesn't the Lotto series have better cameras? Because like, come on, <laughs> buy more lottery tickets, right? Yeah. Well. Bummer for Caleb Ewan. I'm pretty sure he won that bike race. Uh, but it's also cool to see him racing well. 
uh, I, you know, he's, he's been sort of in and out. And if he if he appears as, as he appears to have done, actually won this bike race, and that's a good that's a good stepping stone for him, I think. Yeah, I agree. Uh, all right, so one more minor note. Uh, Any else today? So. Gary Thomas, not going to race Torino Adriatico. He had an infection. Uh, Egan Bernal hurt his knee, what was it, three weeks ago, four weeks ago now? So he's not at Perry-Nice. And I think it's just worth pointing out that it has not been the, the season start uh, for the GC guys over at Ineos the way they would have hoped, even if the decent cyclocross and mountain bike guys uh, are, are having a good year so far. Uh, Bernal did ride, what is it? I saw a Strava ride of his just yesterday. He rode like 130 miles and climbed seven. His Strava is in, like, it's wild. Like yeah. So what's that? It's two, we rode like 200 something K and climbed 5,000 meters or, or something like that. Um, so I think the knee's okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but clearly not good enough to, to come back and race Pyrenees just yet, but yeah. it, you know, good to see him out doing big rides. He's not like permanently, permanently damaged or anything. All right. Last but not least, uh, you know, Cosmo and I used to do big previews of bike races, uh, and I think we're we're gonna mostly focus on not not doing huge long previews of bike races, but we should at least tell you, yes, there's there's more Perinese to come, so you should tune in. Uh, you got all of Torino Adriatico coming up, and if you look at the start list, it's it's interesting. I feel like there was a period where Perinese kind of cornered the market on the. Classics, stars, and now if you look at Terreno, it's got quite a few of them. Uh, there's there's that Matthew Vanderpool guy. There's uh, Tom Pitcock. He's a guy. Uh, there are some you know impressive GC types that are going to that race as well, but I think it's going to be really cool to watch some of those Classics riders as they gear up for the Classics, which are right around the corner. I mean, E3 and Gent-Wivelgum are what, th- three weeks away, less than three weeks away at this point. Uh, so that should be a fun one. Definitely worth tuning in. It doesn't have a team time trial like Perry Nice has, which inherently makes it a better race because team time trials are stupid and worthless. Uh, I love team time trials. Uh, wait, we can wait, talk wait, about wait, that wait, later wait, wait, in the wait, wait, year, wait. I, but we don't have to yeah. go into you know, we, We'll save that conversation. We've We're also out of time had it today, but I, yeah. I will not forget that. Oh, slight I, I, feel like we've, I feel like we've gone over this. I know Cosmo and I have gone over this before. Um, I hate individual time trials, but team time trials are sweet. Terrible. Uh, <laughs> lastly, uh, on the calendar, Ronda Vandretta is next weekend. So by the time we're recording our next show, we'll be able to talk about that, uh, which is I'm pretty stoked about that. That's that's a, a real chance to see some some actual classics racing at the World Tour level, and it's a race that tends to be I, I think a pretty indicative uh, race of, of form. And uh, we're gonna that's gonna be on March 11th in the Netherlands. Uh, uh, hopefully a good one. We'll we'll see what happens, and we'll have that to talk about as well when we come back, if we come back, for the next episode of the Pretty Serious Break Racing Podcast from the Escape Collective Podcast Network. I think that's it, though, for this week, unless unless there's something I missed. Have I missed anything? Uh, people just need to sign up. People need to sign up. EscapeCollective.cc. Go sign up. You support this podcast. You support the rest of our podcasts. You support a whole bunch of pretty fantastic journalists uh, in a with an, with an effort that is membership driven, membership led. We're 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 working for you now uh, instead of working for for a whole pile of endemic advertisers, uh, and that feels really good as somebody who makes content. It allows us to say no to things that we don't like, and and that's that's what independence is. So that's us. Sign up if you believe in it, and uh, sign up if you like this podcast. Because I'm, 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 I wish I was kidding, but I'm not kidding when I say that. Like, if we can't make this work, every single one of us has to go find another job somewhere. It's just the reality. We have to, we got, we got bills to pay. So this is, uh, this is a big moment for, for the whole crew here. Yeah, I really don't want to do that. I don't, so please sign up. No, because uh, no. actually, I, I love talking bike racing. I love talking to Kay about bike racing. I like hearing Cosmo talk about bike racing. <laughs> And I, it's it's pretty sweet that we get to just like, oh hey, it's a, uh, it's a uh, former U.S. national champion Ruth Winder. We get to have a conversation about bike racing, and we can only do that <laughs> if you guys sign up. Uh, I actually, for one, one little note. I mean, we do want to make sure that people are aware. Uh, if you don't, uh, if you don't sign up, there won't be opportunities for Cosmo to go on rants about things <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> and I actually, we didn't really get that this show because I we I think we're trying to save it a little bit. Um, 
we, okay. you know, we very yeah. briefly mentioned the, the Vanderpool, uh, you know, maybe getting a little too much TV time. But uh, hopefully by the next show, we'll have more support for a big rant, uh, which is what I, I really want. Yeah. I was going to say, if you don't like the podcast, also sign up and then you can say, Kaylee, I gave you money. Please get rid of this podcast and get a better one. <laughs> so either way, you should be you should be signing up. Yep. All right. Well, that's I think that's it for us this week. Thank you for joining. Thank you for listening to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. And hopefully we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody.